I'm James Hoog, and this is Outside the Glass. Outside the Glass is brought to you by SquashProShop.com, our source for equipment for racquetball, badminton, paddle tennis, and of course squash. They carry a great selection of squash equipment from all the top manufacturers at the lowest prices. Rackets and shoes, balls and bags, goggles and grips, they've got it all, and they offer fast and free shipping on orders over $25. For the best selection, prices, and service on the internet, visit squashproshop.com. Today we have a conversation with Clive Caldwell. We sat down with Clive during the Tournament of Champions in January couple hours before the uh, champions dinner uh, where Clive and uh, so many other great players were being honored and we had a wonderful conversation Clive has been involved in the game for half a century as a amateur player a junior as a teaching pro um, as a uh, touring professional one of the one of the great players in the in the game in the 70s and 80s, uh, as a director uh, of the Pro Tour in the 1980s, the Hardball Tour, he really uh, reinvented the tour and and took it to uh, to great heights, uh, really revolutionizing uh, the game in North America. So enjoy. Um, so you were 11, and where was this in Toronto? Mm-hmm. At what what club was it? Toronto Cricket Club. And your dad was a, your parents were a member. They they played there, and exactly. and you were doing curling. Like, what were you were you doing other things? No, I started playing tennis there. But I started playing tennis when I was very young, and I didn't really like it. The racket was so heavy, and you know, I was a little kid. Um, so I stopped that, and then they built the squash courts. So they didn't and have squash there. They didn't originally. have squash, and so they built uh, they they built two singles and then again and then a few years later they built another singles and a doubles court and what years were they in the 60s in the 60s so yeah. i would have been 11 i would have been uh, 1962 63 and who was the pro uh jim bentley ended up being the guy and so he sort of he taught me everything and then he brought me to the cambridge club so that my whole life was uh was Started and developed by Jim. What, what what was he like? You know, what what was his? Well, he was sort of a he was a father figure to yeah. me, as you would be in all of these things. Yeah. And uh, and then he, you know, I didn't do very well at school, and I knew very early in my life that I was likely to be a squash professional. It made I thought that Jim, who was a tennis and squash professional at the cricket club, made the same sort of money that my father made. So I figured, well, I could do that. And you have much more fun. <laughs> and, 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 but at least I, my lifestyle would be somewhat similar to what I've had. And the fact that school's not gonna, doesn't seem like it's going to be a big deal for me. Um, so I, And I had that figured out pretty early in my teens. I had that sort of in the back of my mind that I could do Do you that. remember the first day you went on the court? Um, I, I don't know if... I, Pretty much, I sure remember the very early period. I won my first match, so I sort of remember that. What happened in the match? I don't remember. You play, I, were you playing a, another junior? Or oh, yeah. Another oh, yeah, yeah. It, there was a, what it was, the, the cricket club had, it may still even have it, a really great Saturday morning junior program. Right. And the juniors took all the courts from 9 or 8 till noon. Yeah. So it's a pretty big deal for a club to give up that time. And uh, that program was the backbone of, of a great junior program out yeah. of the Toronto Career Club, which I don't know that they still have it, but it, for many, many years they had a great program. At that time, was, was Toronto 
uh, thriving in the way it is now with squash? You know, were, were there clubs everywhere playing, or was it kind of centered at a three or four places? Yeah, it was centered at three or four, for sure. Because there was no real commercial right, stuff at then at all. Right. At all. And so it was just the Cricket Club and the Granite Club and the b and the Toronto Lawn, they all had squash, and they were all these old private yeah. clubs. Right. Are we going? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, then you, you became a good junior. I became a good junior. I won. There were really five of us, and, and um, I guess when I was maybe 13 or 14, I went to my first U.S. junior, all five of us. And uh, Where was it? It was at Episcopal College in Philadelphia. Got picked up in the airport from Darwin Kingsley. And uh, first time I met Aziz Khan, who was also in the back of the car. True story, true story. And uh, so I, I continue to go to those juniors. And I think the guy, I think Larry Terrell yeah. won that first US junior. And I think he beat Sandy McAdoo. McAdoo in the final is my recollection of it. It was just one draw, like under, one draw. under 18. That's right, one draw. Everybody. That was it, everybody's in. And then I won the Canadian Junior when I was 17, I think, at the BNR. And uh, so, you know, the, the, these, the, we used to be called sort of the Bentley Bombers. There were five of us. Um, Craig Benson, who was still around and won, he was the first Canadian to win a U.S. Junior. Gordy Anderson, Gordon Anderson, who's now living in Buffalo and building squash courts. Bill McDonnell, who I work with now and was a great tennis player, a great he he had the he was the leading scorer in the the year that the Philadelphia Flyers won the Stanley Cup. He was a leading scorer in their rookie camp, and he was on a Canadian national baseball championship team. Four 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 sports, yeah. and then a guy named Bob Sampson. So the five of us played all of these things. Bob, I don't know of at all anymore. And then um, Jim Bentley um, decided that he was going to leave the cricket club mm. and build a, a new club. And he asked me to be the squash professional. And he did that the night that I won my second cricket club championship. So I would have been maybe 19. Club championship. Club championship, not juniors. Yeah. Won the championship. Did you he, beat like some? I think I beat. Uh, I mean, this was pretty good. I, I, it may have been Gordon Anderson. It may have been, but anyways, I. Um, so w- was this the Cambridge Club? This was the Cambridge Club. And you're 19. I'm 19. Where were you working? Or were you... no, no, I was still. Uh, I think I was probably still finishing high school. And uh, and he told me, you know, he, he knew that school again wasn't my strong suit. We had a great connection. But he also said, he's still working at the cricket club. This is two years away. I'm going to hand my resignation in in the next month or two. This has to remain completely confidential until I'm ready to go, which is an extended period of time. It was maybe a year and a half before I was ever able to tell anybody. And I started working at the Cambridge Club six months before the club opened. And it opened in... January of 1973, and I started as the head professional. And you've been there ever since. I I, I left for a little while, but fundamentally I've been there pretty much ever since. And I came back even more bizarre. So when I was 23 or 24, there were four partners that started the club, each owning 25%. 
and one of them decided to leave and they had 25% available and they decided to offer it to three people. Myself, I was offered 5%, um, a fitness guy named Alan Scott who was offered 15 and a doctor, Jim Paps, who was also offered five. So I bought that 5% for $7,000. a lot of money for you, right? A lot of money for me, but I had it and I'd been saving it. And uh, so I became a partner when I was 23 or 24. Partnership built a whole bunch of other clubs and other things. I continued with that 5%. And then the partnership fell apart. And Jim Bentley and Ralph Gardner, who were the two principals of the business, they just fell out of love, shall we say. And as a man said to me, either personal or professional relationships are not easy to keep together for the long term. It's, it's just true. Yeah. So, and it was as much personal as it was anything else. Partnership fell apart. I left the Cambridge, sold my interest for $85,000 for the seven that I sold maybe eight, nine years later. And I moved to the Adelaide Club. Right. And I had an opportunity to buy um, 30% of that club to take me from five to 35%. I ended up selling, I had two pieces of real estate, including a home. I sold it all to buy that to about, it was about $300,000. And my, my, my wife at the time, and she died 18 years ago, and I said this in my eulogy, that there's not, we had three children, there's not many women that say, oh sure, sell the family home, sure, I don't care. <laughs> and, and the club wasn't making any money. And I just thought it, it you know, it's in the, it's in the lower level of the tallest office tower in Canada. And the I, Adelaide. The Adelaide. Yeah, I know. I've been in First there, right? Canadian. And, um, and I just felt, you know, we got to be able to figure it out. This is the best located club in the country. If you can't figure it out, nobody can. So we got to be able to figure it out. So she agreed and we sold everything we rented for five, six, seven years. And it was really the beginnings for me. So I owned the club outright. Eventually I bought my other partners out. And then in 1991, Jim, who had really was now the, he owned 90% of the Cambridge Club when this partnership fell apart, um, he just mucked it up, really. He wasn't the service guy he should have been. He fell in love with the game of golf, so he wasn't in the club as much as he should have been. And so by 1991, he was weeks away from bankruptcy. And I felt that I could turn it around, and I was able, one of the big benefits I was able to manage both the Adelaide and the Cambridge that were only a block apart. So I, I didn't have that expense of having to hire a manager. And so where he was losing money, I was really first year able to sort of break even. I had another gentleman help me do it financially. And so I started to run both those clubs. And uh, the Cambridge club is now full, men only. It's very bad, very bad. But why, it's really... why, why not go co-ed? Well, physically, it would be extremely difficult. Because the court's in the locker room. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. just be impossible. But the other thing is, as I say to people, you know, in business, creating uniqueness is one of the critical elements of any business. And it is unique, and it works. And, and you know, as you would know as an American particularly, it has been, it, it, it's almost illegal, or at least it sure was, to have a men's club mm. and you do get still the odd the union club in new york is still a men's club but you know the university club used to be a men's club yeah. the detroit athletic club used to be, they no no but today especially in the commercial world single sex is a big deal particularly for women curves and there's a lot of women's only situations around 
it's probably more manageable today than it would have been 30 years ago. But it, it, it remains a fabulous place. I then was able to buy um, four other businesses, four other clubs. I bought the Fitness Institute, which was owned by the H.J. Heinz Corporation. Mm. And uh, they had three high-end clubs. They also owned, in New York, Cardio Fitness, was it? Remember Cardio? It was a sort of a high-end... You, you, they would launder your clothes and you, you wouldn't bring your own clothes, just your own shoes. So that, that was a ridiculous thing for H.J. Heinz to be into. So they sold it to us. And, um, and I bought a club in Montreal that was also bankrupt, the MAA. Right. We turned that around. I sold it three years ago. There was an awful lot of capital that was going to be required. and I just didn't have the stomach for it. And I sold two of the three uh, fitness institutes and continue to have the... Uh, the, the main one, which is in the penthouse of the of one of our downtown Toronto towers, hmm. um, and so that's the business. It's three fitness clubs. They're a ten minute walk apart. Um, they serve the financial community of downtown Toronto. So it's bankers, lawyers, accountants, brokers, all of that community. Um, they all have squash, but modest. They the Cambridge Club has got two singles and a doubles. The uh, Adelaide has got three singles, and the Toronto Athletic Club has got four singles. So I think that's 10 courts, and 25 years ago there would have been 25 courts. And it's not so much a negative of squash as much as it is we needed more things to to fill out the club offering. And, And so squash is still very important. We've all got very serious squash professionals. In in one case, two at one club yeah. in the four with the yeah. Toronto Athletic, and the yeah. you know people pay an extra twenty five dollars a month or three hundred dollars a year to play squash, and um, it, the the game is really still very strong in yeah. our in yeah. our neck of the woods. What floor is the Cambridge Club on? It's on the eleventh floor yeah. of which is the penthouse <laughs> of of a hotel tower, the right. Sheraton sure. Center. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, what about the economics of squash? People, you know, there's always this debate. Well, you know, you're not us- utilizing the space. Like, how have you commercially? Is it just sort of having a whole bunch of things that people can do, and squash is one of them? Or how do you keep viable? Yeah. Well, you know, number one, I am doing my best to create a whole, which is bigger than the sum of its parts. I am trying to create a club. I'm trying to create an environment. And so in many ways, the more I can offer to you, the better. And, and you would know as these, and I come like the Toronto Cricket Club where I started, it's a big yeah. family club. And they've got a dozen tennis courts, eight squash courts, figure skating, six sheets of curling, swimming, lawn bowling, cricket, you know, just a, it's a big facility. So the better, the more you got, and that thing's been there for a long, long time, and it'll be there for a long time. So that's the same thing. Um, you, you know, the squash is, it's, 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 you need two levels. You've got really on the two levels, you're dealing with about 1,300 square feet, and there's only two people can go in it. So it's not the greatest use of space. But it's okay with what we've got. We've, got a, we've just got a few, but it's very active, mm-hmm. and, and it works. But you'd never, for me, build 
you know, ten you know, ten squash court facility. It just would make no because sense. Because we have a couple of those mega facilities, you know, that have even now have you know ten, fifteen courts. Yeah, um, they're tough. They're tough. tough economically. Yeah. The other thing that I came to realize later on, I didn't realize it when my when I first started in the business. Even then, all these racket sports are all subsets of fitness. Right. That's still the driver. Yeah. That's what the average person is more comfortable with. It's more difficult to learn to play the games, to get a game, to find a partner. It, they have always been subsets of the fundamental nature right. of fitness itself. Right. right. Running, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And you got to keep that in, 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 yeah, that's why you're there to work out. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's a game, Jim, that's been around for a long time. And it, it, it remains very strong. It, it, as I like to describe it, it's a cult. There's a handshake. There's a, it's a cult. And, and my daughter was very involved in rowing. That's another cult. If you're a rower, there's, you, know, you can go anywhere in the world and you're welcome. I went, um, four years ago, I went on a trip to South Africa. And I was talking before I went to a guy from Toronto who's from South Africa. And he's a jester, and he said, there's a jester's event going on when you get to Johannesburg. You should go. I'll set you up. Boy, I, I went. I went to the Johannesburg Country Club. They had all these double. They had four double softball four doubles courts. Yeah. The place was rocking. I spent the night with them. I was so welcomed, and it's all over the world, right? Yeah. It's all over yeah, the that's world. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a cult. So tell me about the, the pro tour in 71 or 68 or... You know, when you were becoming, you know, playing, right? Yeah. You were playing events. Yeah. Did you so, turn pro at some point? Yes, I turned pro. It, it was funny. I, I'll, before I get into the other, that was a, that was another one of the something I'm very bitter about. But I announced in the Toronto papers. You know, they do. They don't do it in New York that I say, but in the Globe and Mail, Toronto paper, in the business section. They do business announcements. If you've just become vice yeah, chairman totally. of the thing, they have a little thing, your picture, and here's what. Well, they did that for me. Um, I was going to be the squash professional. It was a marketing thing for the club. This is the guy. Well, when that was now made official, I've not made any money. I've not done anything. Squash or the, the Canadian Squash Rackets Association, which was John Smith Chapman mm -hmm. and Ian Stewart, they refused to let me play any amateur events. So I was deemed a professional once that announcement was made. Even though you weren't even working there. I right? wasn't working. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> so so that, that, that was the start of it. And, and um, so that there wasn't really a pro tour at all. Um, the, the North American Open was being played. Mm -hmm. And the pro was being played. And I think just at around that time, and you would know this better than me, and you, it was maybe 70, 71 when the Boston Open started. Right. And I wasn't invited for the first uh, first one or two, but third or fourth, I was. So that was it. I was a working pro. I, I played the odd event, but not much. And then Jim Rowland organized the, the Canadian Professional Squash Association in maybe <clears throat> 74, 75. For teaching pros. For teaching pros all around Calgary Vancouver. it was more Toronto it was more okay. but you know it's a big country and but, it's right you know it, it's hard um, and so he ran it for a year or two and I didn't really like what he was doing I, I there's always been for me within the professional ranks before now 
a certain bitterness that we weren't being taken care of properly by the Canadian squash, the amateur associations. They should be doing more for us. And I always was always of the view, it's not about them, it's about us. We, you know, we want to do it. So I ran against him and I, and I won and became the president of the Canadian Professional Squash Association. And I started to, I did a deal with Ken Delph of Manta and they became the official racket. And we started to get some money. And I then started to seed events in the Ontario market. So I would go to Kitchener and I would say, look, I can give you $2,000 if you match it. We can have a $4,000 event with 16 players and the winner could win $1,000. And I started doing that and started having some success with it. Were the clubs saying, why would we do that? Or were they, did they get how this is like they got a great... It. They yeah. got it. I mean, you know, professional sports was coming and yeah. there was still tennis and lots of things. You know, it wasn't that they were just, you know, please come. You know, we had to do a little bit of a sales job, but still, um, they liked it. And, and I came up with this notion of, of how to do it. I also, at that point, started to study how the professional groups were doing things. And there were three groups that I really studied hard. Um, the racquetball group, who were really having a lot of success, tennis, and then the golf. And as you probably would know, for me, there is nobody that can touch the golfers. They are incredible. And they always have been. And, and they, uh, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about this tonight, but they started in 1916. That might have been you that told me that recently. But they, the, the PGA of America started right. in 1916. And it was in the 60s that they broke up. And that was, it was predominantly for the teaching pros right. and the country club guys. But they started running tournaments. PGA Championship is one of the four majors. But the PGA players, the tour players, they broke away in the early 60s to create the PGA Tour. They're two very separate organizations. They're both not-for-profit organizations. The three-man executive of the PGA of America sit on the board of the PGA Tour, but they're separate organizations. So we were really a teaching group, right? but we were still doing starting events, events and starting yeah. to do events. Right. I then, you know, as you know, I'm a very mouthy guy and I have a point of view and a guy named John Frittenberg really started to get pissed off at me, and he was on the executive. And so I said, look, I don't have to be the president. Why don't you be the president? We can work together. So he took over. We didn't, it didn't work out between the two of us. So I was now a free agent. And Victor Niederhofer, who had taken over the North American Professional Association, changed it to the World Professional Association. He decided to resign, and he asked me to take it over. And I did, and that was sort of seventy nine, eighty, and. Um, but you came in and like completely changed everything. I mean, right. So what happened when you came in? What were you? You had a whole agenda of ideas, or? I did. I did. You know, I have to show you this. I just found. I th was trying to find it if, if, a year ago, and by fluke, I found it four days ago, and that is my. A document that I created in 1980. Oh, fantastic. It spelled out what I was going to do. And this was it. I'll show it to it's you. It's like a, a white paper. It was a white paper on everything. How to do it. And how to do it. And I, so the, one of the first things I did was I separated 
the teachers from the players. Like the PGA. And I cre- exactly. And I created the brand, the the WPSA tour. Right. So there had it just, it just had never been named. It had never been branded. And then I went to work in the same method that I had done um, with the the Canadians to to reach out to different groups. And if I could seed money, I would. If I didn't have it, just try to get them to do it. And we started to develop a, a tour. I was also able at that time, and that was this was a very, very important part of it, because I would never be able to do it on my own, is an old friend who from Toronto who had lived in California and had had promoted a couple of professional events in California named Bob, Bob French, French yeah. um, came to work with me. And he did it on a professional basis. We paid him, and I did it as a volunteer. And he was a, uh, he had spent his life in the 70s working as a sales and marketing guy for Xerox. And, and at that time, Xerox were really highly regarded in the training that they did in sales and marketing. And, and you know, really until John Nimick, I don't think it was anybody who did a better job selling squash to major corporations. And so Xerox came on board with us, Fleischmann's Margarine Margarine came on board. We did a fabulous deal for the WPSA with Spalding, and they became the official racket. I met a guy named Sandy Grieve who was the chairman of a public company called Questor, and Spalding was one of their four major brands that they controlled, and he was he helped us get it going, and uh, and so I was I was the president for four years. My executive was Dave Johnson, who was at the park of uh, the racket and tennis, and Dave Talbot, who's still at the uh, you know Dave is at, at Williams, and Dave Talbot is at uh, yeah. at Yale, and uh, and then I it was around that time eighty four eighty five, I was I was able to get control of the Adelaide Club. And I felt it wasn't fair to my partners to carry on in that role. It was taking so much time, so I resigned and, and Dave Johnson took over. But as I like to say, when I took over uh, in 79, the WPSA as an association probably had revenues of about $5,000 and, and a tournament of 10. And when I left four years later, um, we were over a million dollars because we did these big events in Toronto at the at the sure. Sheraton Center and in the Convention Center, and they were big deals. And uh, so I really did have a pretty. I think I, I've had a fair amount of business success, but in many ways, I look back on those years as the best business success I ever had, because I really did out of nothing, sort of took it somewhere. Right. And I also made the decision at that time, I put a big board together because I thought it was really important to try to get all of the different elements of the sport aware and supportive of what we were doing. And so I remember having big meetings of 15, 20 people to just let them know what we were doing and try to get people on side. It's fair to say they all didn't go on side. I, I think I remained, both I remained personally somewhat controversial and the whole idea of the, the professional game, because really you would say, you know, the USSRA wanted to control the game. They didn't want this old thing out there. There was not much they could do to stop it, but they weren't really supportive of it. Yeah. And that, that's, to some degree, it's still the case. And, you know, it's one of the beautiful things with golf. It is truly controlled by the players. It's a not-for-profit entity. 
And the U.S., the other nice thing about golf is that it still remains very separated in amateur and professional. Yeah. Where both golf, sorry, squash and tennis, it's cloudy. Now it's it very right. cloudy. There's Nobody's making announcements saying they're turning pro in, in the yeah. newspaper now. <laughs> yeah. But the truth of it is, it is still separate. Yeah. There are you are still an amateur. You are you're doing it for fun, and you're doing it to make a living, or you're doing it to teach to make a living. But it's muddy. It's not the same. Where in golf, it's very very separate, and uh, so that was the run of it. And then I I remained involved. The resistance, you know, um, you you were kind of like here's a new structure, a new paradigm. We're trying to reinvent how we do this game. Yep. And and. one of, one of the things was the oversized racket, right? That's right. So tell me the story of that. So that was mine. And it, and again, it was a funny thing. So it, it wasn't quite mine, meaning that the very first oversized racket, I think fair to say, was the slightly larger head racket. Yeah, the competition. It was a, it was a composite. It yeah. was black. It was it was a revolutionary yeah. racket. But it was it was just a little bit bigger yeah. it wasn't much and uh, there was a, maybe a little bit of controversy but not much around that when we were developing these rackets for spalding i basically took a max play and i max play tennis racket right. and i said i want to make that that's yeah. the size that i want and and again i one of my things in business is as tom peters would do he calls it creative swiping i call it stealing but I just like to steal ideas and things. And so tennis had already come up with the Prince racket. It was already a big deal. So I wasn't really being that revolutionary. It was just this sport was doing it. Makes sense to have it just easier to hit the ball. Let's have a bigger racket. Bigger sweet spot. So the Max Ply racket, tennis racket, was exactly the same length. So there was no issue on length as a squash racket. It was not really much wider. So I just said, let's do that. And so they went and manufactured under into a composite. Where where where'd they make that in Canada? Or? No, they no no they made it in the Far East. They were, and and it was one of the things that Victor Niederhofer tried to do. He was very close to getting a deal with a manufacturing company in Taiwan called Kunan. They were the big manufacturer, and they manufactured for everybody. I believe that's where Spalding got it done. I don't remember exactly, but I believe that's where they got it done. And so it shows up. It shows just, up just one I'm, or fifty or a few. It was just, it does this work, you know? And I'm going, this works. So we try to get this approved nowhere. Well, well, they, you, didn't you bring it out it. at a tournament? Yeah, at I the brought Boston it. Open. Correct. And so I got the agreement of our association, of which I'm the president, that we're going to approve this, and we're so we're playing with it. It's an approved racket in our sport, in our tour, but it's not really approved, and it just takes some time. And now. Well, it's, it's ironic. So, you, did you get fined, or did you have to? You, they they banned you from using the racket, right? Well, at the time, no, because I was able to use it on the tour, and that's what I was so playing. You, so, you, I don't. Maybe I wasn't allowed to use it in the North American Open, yeah. which was owned by the United States Squash Rackets Association at the time. Um, so you but, stopped using it, though, right? For then, for then, but but no, I kept. I, I used it for a long time. Because it's ironic time. because now we're all using that racket. Right, right. I mean, everybody. everybody. You know, and I mean, for better or for worse, like that's our game now is these really light, really strong, stiff it. rackets you that, that you... And they all fought it. But you know, as I say in our business, and I say to all of our people, 
every change is a nightmare. Nobody wants change. And if you don't change, you die. And that's the truth. You have to change and everybody hates you for doing so. You got to manage your way through that minefield. So that's what that was. And then, so then we were, you know, I still remain, I was on the board. I resigned in 84, 85. I'm still on the board. I'm still very engaged. I love the sport. I'm still out playing. But we're not, the hardball game just is... is so when did, when did you know, did you know in 1979, 1980, when everything's blowing up and it's fantastic, that, you know, hardball's... I know there's issues. I know well, you, issues. right away. You know there's issues. There's Men issues. and cup, there's, like you know things issues. are going on on the other side there, of it. There's, there's other things, but you know, I the I mean, first things were going the, so well. Things were going so well. The first um, time I played on a wide court, I would have been 23, and it was at the Toronto Squash Club, and they built an 18 court, 17 court complex with one international court. Right. What year was that? 73, 74, right. 74, facility. 75. Huge facility. Massive. Totally yeah. changed the Toronto, yeah, right? Exactly. And so, um, you know, it's just a very slow thing, but it's just, it, it's it's creeping in. We're also, um, uh, we were then and we are, in, we are today, although maybe not New York, we're a more multicultural, immigrant-friendly country. So all of these... Australians and Brits are coming into our country who've already played the game, so they're bringing it. So there's that element coming in. Um, so by the late 80s, we're still having success with the tour. The tour looks great. The tour looks great. <clears throat> and, and, and in my mind, another thing that with Bob and myself, I don't think even to this day, the tours, the squash tour ever looked better than what we were doing at the time. And... Uh, you know, my wife asked me this this morning. It's funny, this logo, this uh, WPSA logo, mm. um, which I still today say that's one of the great logos we've ever done. The original logo in this capacity was done by Victor Niederhofer. And when I say the original, it was a it was a half moon. Mm. It was it was blue, black, and orange, and the 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 figure was black who was the figure like i don't remember design. who it was i don't remember who it was but at that time bob was the first one to say to me you can't do that because you can't copy that right good he's a xerox guy you can't copy you can't copy black against red it just doesn't work but the baseball logo already the major league baseball logo was was blue and red with a white baseball bat um, all of these logos have been done in this format. So it wasn't a genius to figure out, but I did make the change from what Victor had done. This was red and blue. This is me. And Bob took a picture of me in a parking lot in, in a pose that I, I struck, and we put the WPS and created that logo. So I also became, some of these softball guys started coming over, mm. And I became quite friendly with a number of guys and still am today. Chris Dittmar was the president. And, uh, and I've had a really wonderful relationship with Rodney Isles, who's now in the U.S. He's moved his whole family here and still I'm very close to them. And, and, um, and Chris and I started talking about merging the groups together. And we agreed to do it. And I think in 92 we, we did. So yeah. they were ISPA. 
we were the WPSA and we created the PSA. Yeah. And um, so you were part of those those discussions and I led those discussions. <clears throat> I did that yeah. with Chris. And John was, I think, John Nimick was the executive director, so right. he was involved yeah. in it. And and we, we we put the deal together, and then I joined uh, with John. I think John is still on the professional staff, and Rick Burke. Uh, we became part of the board of that new association. A few years later, Jack Herrick joined us, yeah. Yeah. and he became chairman, and he was chairman right. for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and that's so sort of in where those we negotiations, uh, what were the what were the dynamics? Because it seemed like Jack's told me about that, that that you know, our tour was pretty vibrant. We had a lot of money. They were kind of struggling financially, but they had the connections all over the world. Yeah, which we didn't obviously, with promoters and yeah. I, I what, don't. What, what, were, what, what were the issues that you were? I think the real issues, to be honest with you, were still the hardball softball. What is it all going to be? How's that all playing out? What I mean. You know, we really want you to be our North American agent here. What are you promoting hardball? So it, that that was it more than anything else. So we basically, the American Canadians had to say, "All right, we're, we're, we'll we'll go to softball." Basically, basically that's that was right. The, that was that's, our, that's our concession. Right. I don't remember if at that moment there wasn't another hardball event played professionally. I don't. There, really there were two remember or three it, more afterwards, but, but not much. But it, you know, the writing was on the wall. But you know, everybody was starting to switch and... Exactly. Um, so we, we combined all the finances. Yeah. We had two offices, so we didn't just all, you know, there was one in Cardiff with yep. Roger Eady and, right. uh, and uh, yep. so that was the headquarters, but there was still something in North America. Was that in Toronto or in... Um, no, because John was So it was in Bob, the guy. Was It was house. John, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And... Um, and off we went. And then John, when Roger left, John became the head of it. Yeah. Right. And then I, it was the other thing that happened. I started doing the, as I mentioned to you, the, um, uh, the Adelaide Club was in a, a building called First Canadian Place, owned by Olympian York. And Olympian York was a major Canadian real estate firm. They built the World Financial Center here, and they built Canary Wharf in London. And by 92, 93, at the end of the real estate crunch, they ended up going bankrupt, predominantly because of Canary Wharf and predominantly because Margaret Thatcher promised them an underground out to Canary Wharf, and it didn't come for another 10 years. Uh, Canary Wharf is a massive success. Now it it was right, yeah. but they were too early, and they, they, they're still, I think the Reichmans are okay. But I had heard about the World Financial Center, and so I went to do some work for Canary, for them in Canary Wharf. And um, on, on my first trip over, I stopped in New York to look at the World Financial Center. And I thought, we could do this here. At these the palm, yeah, these yeah. palm trees are a bit of a pain in the neck, but I think we can make it work. And they agreed, they gave, it to the, they gave me the space, and we started to run the event. And that was the WPSA Championship. Right. Then, when I, I guess at, at that point now in, in oh sorry ninety six, um, the the new PSA didn't have the ability to run the event, and John was about to leave, so John bought the event from them, yeah. changed the name from the WPSA or the PSA to the Tournament of Champions, yeah. and moved it to Grand Central, and that's yeah. what we're celebrating right. tonight, the twentieth right. anniversary, and that's how it all all came to be, but it was my relationship with the Reichmans 
that was able to get us that site back into into the Winter Garden. Back into the Winter Garden, and um, uh, somehow or other, it survived 9/11. Right. Well, it was damaged. Uh, it was damaged, and if you remember, there used to be a walkway from the trade towers right, right, over right, the 11th the Avenue Highway right. to the street and into there, and that's now gone. You've right. got to walk Under, underground. Yeah. Right. Um, what was the thing with the bunny suit? I used, it wasn't a bunny suit, what but I it? used a, I, I tried an outfit by, I had a very close friend named Toller Cranston. And Toller was a world-class figure skater. And he made a thing for me that was sort of a jumpsuity thing. What, a white? Single, it was white. What, and it wasn't, what, what, what did you call it? What did, it wasn't the bunny suit. People that wanted to make fun of me would have been calling it the bunny suit, but I sure wouldn't have been. <laughs> And that was in the, uh, that would have been mid to late 70s, I think. And you wore it just once? Twice, or Maybe twice. At the Boston Open, right? Yeah, the Boston Open, exactly. That was it. And I've just, any, if I've ever find pictures of it, I destroy them as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, you make a few mistakes in your life, Did you, know? you do that? Why did you do that? Just to have fun? Or did you, did, were you trying to break ground? I was trying to break ground. Same as the racket. Just trying to do different things that would... You know, so break ground is absolutely the right the, the right descriptor. Because now people's outfits, you know, they were the socks. They everything's sort of different now. That yep. back then everybody was wearing all white, right? Yep. Because yep. exactly. was that a big deal to to say, hey guys, let's have colored clothing in these events? Well, I th I think it was yes, and and but you still had situations where like Wimbledon today, you, yep. you know. But, but back then, in, in like 1962, when you started playing, everybody was all white oh, clothing, yeah. everything. everything. So, you know, you had to push in this idea professionally, like, all right, well, we're not going to wear all white for these events. Correct. And people but again, that. But again, Jim, I would say to you, it was being done in tennis already. So you had that as a... It's already, before, it's happening, yeah, it's happening. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you, the Cambridge Club, we're still whites only. Yeah. Right, and it just for me, it it just puts you up a little bit of a level. It's just a little yeah. bit more refined. It's a bit snooty. It's not quite right, but and and, and still the same with golf. There's a real attire, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And it yeah. just it, even though one talks about golf being much more of a sport of the masses, it's also part of the beauty of the game. Is it is a sport of the elite. Aspirational, yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you and I have talked a couple times about like. If you controlled the world of squash and could magically do things um, and change things without uh, having a lot of meetings and aggravation and, and angry emails and phone calls, what, what what would sort of the five things? What you know? What would you? What would you do? I I, I know I want to suggest one to you, but what what do you remember? What what do you want to do if you could just snap your fingers and you know have things run differently? Well. You know, you know, first and foremost, I think the professional tour is a critical component of, of the sport. And, and take for an example golf again, if I may. Um, there's a lot of pushback at the moment about golf. That the game, they're closing more courses than they're building. Right. Um, the, the, sort of the bloom is off the rose. But the truth of it is, for me, the, the sport with that pro tour has never been healthier. It's mm. unbelievable how the, 
profile and the prize money. It's just insane. Yeah. So yes, there's a little bit of stuff over here, but in general, that pro tour drives it. And take take my family and my insane wife. My wife is just insane about golf. She just lets get out on the golf course for well, God's sake. Well, like squash. People get obsessed with that game. Exactly, exactly. So it, it remains. So that's that's my starting point. And where I have a bit of a negativity, one of the things that the sport is all about, the sport is all about the Olympics. I don't think it matters that much. I, it, you know, badminton's in the Olympics. So what? Who cares? I mean, it doesn't do anything. That's the, It's the pro tour. So I think there needs to be a much, much stronger drive on the pro tour. And I think the great players that are playing today have got to be out there a lot because that's our that's our brand. Shop window. Shop window, and and America remains the dominant place. I mean, it's not as dominant as it was. So there's a there's a huge golf in in the rest of the world now, and there, there's other, but it's still it's so easy to manage America. So I would really be trying to get whatever prize money we can get them playing. And the sport has another problem right now to me is that where a lot of the great events and the prize money events are sort of in the third world. And there's actually not a lot of squash there. And, and you know, you get all these big events in Cairo and in the Middle East. And, well, they're really funded by <clears throat> right. some wealthy people. They don't have many people coming. They got a quarter of a million dollars. And, and so the, the players, well, I don't need to go to... Chicago and play for seventy thousand dollars. What do I need that for? Right. They need to be out there. They need to be selling their wares. Well, one of the things that you had said to me, I remember we talked about this when I was up at the Cambridge Club fifteen years ago, uh, was little events. Have as many little events. Get the pros out there in every little club. Be in Yellowknife. Be be in be Zimbabwe. Be everywhere you can find in the world, and 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 have little events. Just, Just start them, it. Let them grow. Yeah. Now it's it's a little beyond that now because there's quite a few events and you're, but it, it's still the same idea. It's about activity. Yeah. Get activity and it, it's really what we did there. We had a lot of activity and it just starts to percolate, and and somewhere you'd never imagine. It was funny. I talked to Charlie McKnight in the last two weeks. Hadn't talked to Charlie in thirty years, and here we did. I started going to the Toledo Club in this grungy little, it's a beautiful old club, but this grungy town and this old club, and we were playing in a basement where there might have been no more than room for 30 people. And by the time we finished, they were craning up a portable court into a ballroom. It still was only 200 people or something, but it was unbelievable over time and effort what you could do and build. So I just believe in that. Yeah. The other thing that occurs is that the more you activity you get, the more competition you get, and you get people doing things they would never imagine because they're going to beat that guy because i got to get more prize money because I want to get Jahangir to come and play. Right. All of that stuff. Right. One of my favorite things that I continue to quote Jack Barnaby, I quote Jack all the time. Jack, who is the best tennis player of all time? Well, Claude, you can't really make distinctions between generations. It's not really possible. You can't say that that Roger Federer was better than Rod Laver and because he had a better forehand. But what you can do, you can determine who dominated their their, their Era. times, yeah. their eras. 
And he said on that basis, the best tennis player of all time was Bill Tilden. Oh, definitely. Now, they didn't have any of the competition, but for a decade, right. he was the guy. That's right. Right? And so, yeah. but it, I just loved, it, forgetting that he called it was Bill Tilden, I just loved how he framed it. Framed it, it. yeah. Well, that's and, it. Because exactly you're seeing right. this tonight. We're, we're having these guys, all these different generations, and like, you know, Sharif, Jonathan Power. Like, who, who was better, right? It's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. It was just, you know, whatever. Like, it, these it are was different. more dominant. It was more and, dominant. And therefore, it was Sharif. I mean, in a way, you have to say that, right? Yeah. Outside the Glass would like to thank everybody who was involved with this month's podcast, uh, especially Grant Irving.